We have just concluded our study on what book? I was nervous when I asked that question. I was afraid if people just looked at me, then uh, we'd have to go back over the whole thing again. We have considered the reality of who Jesus is, but more than who that, who God is. I, I mean by that we've seen to some extent the role of all three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So often we may focus on one, and we talk a lot about Jesus, and rightfully so. But what role does Jesus play in the Godhead? We worship a God who is three in one, and John has reminded that. And we've considered what Christianity is and is not, or more accurately, what born again looks like. Christianity has become a religion, but it was never intended to be that. And by that, I'm not saying, oh, you know, everything that happens in Christian churches, I have a man I'm interacting with right now, and if you say church, he just about throws up. It's not about church. It's not about anti-church. And welcome back, Brian. Brian just flew in from Chile. He was on a later flight than the rest of the team. And, and sorry, sorry, bro. Um, it's my last Sunday for a while, so I'm cutting loose here. I'm picking on everybody. Christianity is life in Christ. It's life in Christ. It's a new life in Christ. It's life lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so often we can end up settling for so much less and think that is all there is. It's life in Christ and having fellowship with Christ and with the Father through the Spirit. Back in 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, John said this as he's beginning this letter, that which we have seen and heard and proclaim also to you. Do you think who Jesus was was a passion for John? My head's hurting, people. Do you think who Jesus was was a passion, was a priority for John? Yes. Why? He'd seen him. He'd walked with him. He'd heard him. He'd seen the miracles. And then he watched him die. And then he spent time with him after the resurrection. And then he received the Holy Spirit. John wasn't the same because he wasn't the same. That's the point of Christianity. So that you too may have fellowship with us, he says, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete in watching you have that same fellowship. John also describes this new life or this journey as walking in the light, and one of the key descriptions of a result of this new life is living in or walking in love. Did you catch that theme in First John? Love God and love others. Love, love, love. John is saying this is how you know you're his. If you love him and you love those he loves. That's John's encouragement and his admonition. It's a telltale sign of actually having new life. Life from above. Life from the indwelling and powering Holy Spirit. What I want to look at this morning is either the reason for this letter or the results of this letter, and some commentators are a little bit split on that issue. 
did Revelation, the book of Revelation, precede the book of 1 John? Some say that 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John maybe the last written New Testament book. Or did Revelation come first and then or did 1 John come first and then Revelation and the vision of the churches in Asia Minor? Was that a result of or post what John wrote in the letter? I'm not sure I'm going to decide on either one of those, but I want you to know that both are probably pertinent. Either way, what we read in Revelation about the church in Ephesus is pertinent. In either case, John was addressing a need in this church in the Ephesian area. Either he wrote to challenge them because of what God had said about them in Revelation, or what God said about them in Revelation as a result of the church in Ephesus not responding entirely to John's teaching. So what we get to see about today is this addendum to what he has written. So if you can or if you will, we're going to read from Revelation chapter 2 and take a look at what Jesus has to say to this church. So I'm going to read, if you can or will, would you stand as we read Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works. I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you, and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, I pray that we will have ears to hear as you have challenged even the readers to that in this letter. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you notice first? Lord, I need a rest. <laughs> well played, Dan. Stan. What do you notice first in this letter to the church at Ephesus? Who's it from? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you read Revelation 1, it's a picture of Jesus. And it's not Jesus as he was seen on the earth. <laughs> when John sees Jesus in Revelation, now remember, he's Jesus' closest acquaintance. He knows Jesus. He, he walked with Jesus. He lived with Jesus. He loved Jesus. And he sees Jesus in heaven and he goes, hey, I five, five. What happens when he sees Jesus in heaven? 
He falls on his face as though dead. He faints because of his glory. This is the Jesus who came and gave his life for us. But it's the Jesus who now in eternity is seen in his glory in heaven. And he says to the churches, I know you. (laughs) I know everything about you. Good, bad, and ugly. I know you. And by the way, it's the churches of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who is the head of the churches. John wrote the letter, but beyond him is the one who spoke to John, and that is Jesus. I would strongly encourage you to go back and spend some time reading Revelation 1 and say, Jesus, let me see you as you are. In verse 1 of chapter 2, Jesus is described as the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And if you look back in chapter 1, that's the seven churches who are being addressed. And he holds the seven stars, which are the angels of each of the churches in his right hand. Who's in charge? Here. Who's always been in charge? (laughs) Jesus. And the church is his. He owns it. He leads it. It's his. The bottom line picture is that Jesus is the head of the churches. We are a body, which is what the church is to grow up into. We as a body are to grow up into him. Let me read Ephesians chapter 4, 19. Rather, speaking the truth in love, Paul says, to guess whom? The Ephesians. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Paul says to the church at Colossae in chapter 1, verse 18, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Who's the church about? We might want to practice this just a little bit. Thank you. The body of Christ, which means we, the church is about Christ. It's his that in everything he might be preeminent. It's not our place, it's his place. Now we're talking about the church at large, but I want you to realize that this letter is written to a specific church in a specific place at a specific time. It is a local church congregation which Jesus is addressing through John. This letter is about local church life. In chapter 2 of Colossians, Paul describes those who had decided to set their own agenda for God's church. They had attempted to make God's church their church. And in Colossians chapter 2, 19, he says, And not holding fast to the head from which the whole body nourished and knit together, its joints and ligaments grows up with a growth that is from God. This church is not about us, and we tend to, in America, make church about whom? Us. I'm so thankful for our worship team and their growth and what they're doing. They cause us to worship, but it's not just about what it does for us. It's about what it causes us to do for him and for each other. We worship him together. And so in Revelation... Jesus, the head of his church, gives John an assessment of his church, which is comprised of several churches in the first century. But specifically this morning, we're looking at the church at Ephesus, the church to whom 1 John 
was written. And these letters begin with the statement, I know your works. When you think of Jesus knowing everything about you, does that make you nervous or encourage you? Both. It's both. It's a challenge and it's an encouragement. Jesus knows, and the word translated there is the word oida, which means more than just knowing facts. It's certain knowledge. It's, it's being acquainted with and intimate with. Jesus intimately involved in the lives of both his church, his churches, and the lives of believers. Jason, will you ever forget the churches in Chile? Why? Because they're your brothers, you know them. For most of us now, Kyle Callistead and Doug and Shelly and their ministry is sort of, you know, we've heard about it and we think about it maybe or it's nice. For those who just got back from Chile, will you ever forget them? You can't. You won't. Because now they're your friends or they're brothers and sisters and you served with them. And you know them in a way that those of us who have not been there know them. Jason. When you think of the churches and the church planters in Ethiopia, is it just facts? No. It's real. It's heartwarming and heart-wrenching at times because we have seen and met the folks. By the way, that's one of the things that is so significant about taking an overseas missions trip if you ever get to go once your heart is broadened to the people around the world and the body of Christ it's open to all those people in every area so Jesus begins with this statement I know your works Hebrews 6.10 is a great verse it's a great life verse to the writer of Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews writes to these people, For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown me for his name in serving the saints, and you still do. You know what that says? God knows. God knows what we're all going through. God knows what we've done. God knows who we are. God knows. It doesn't slip by him. And, and he's not just like, oh, uh, duh, uh, duh. Doug Weber, I knew him once. Their commendations and their corrections because God intimately knows this church. And it's worth our time to look at all of these letters, although we're not going to today, but for our time this morning to the church at Ephesus, he gives a number of commendations. What are they? Hard work, toil, patient endurance. That's a great admonition the week after Bible school. Intolerance of those who are evil. Tested those who call themselves a possible. Endurance in suffering. Are those pretty good commendations of a church? Is that a church that you, sounds like you would like to go there or maybe check it out? They're positive. What I want us to consider this morning, however, is not those. We don't have time. It's the correction that's given to this church, this good church. This church that he says, you've done all these things. Then he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. Now, who's saying this? 
Jesus, the Lord of the church, the one for whom the church is about, the head of the church. Nevertheless, with all of this stuff that you do, I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love. It's so pertinent, and that so much of 1 Timothy has to do with that, doesn't it? 1 Timothy, read it again. Love, love, love. Love the Lord your God. Love others. Loving God. Loving each other. And so if this is the precursor to that, if it's a response to what Jesus is saying, or if 1 Timothy, if this is a response after 1 Timothy is, uh, has has been written, and the church has heard the letter but ignored what it said, and Jesus comes to this and says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. So there's some key questions to ask here, not only about the passage, but potentially about us. What does first love mean? Well, it can mean a couple of things. It could mean first chronologically. In that case, Jesus would be challenging these believers that they had left the love that they began with. Remember when you first came to Christ? You were so full that you couldn't hardly shut up. You, you talked to everybody who would listen and most of the people who wouldn't. You couldn't shut up. Remember when you first fell in love with your spouse? Remember that? Somebody say yes, men. Thank you, Patrick. You're bailing us out here, buddy. You were consumed. I remember before I even met Linda, I saw her a few times. And I'm like, I think my life changed. I started stalking her. her. You can't do that. I, I, I didn't have the internet. I had a Mustang. So I, it cost me money. I had to drive around to stalk that woman. It changed my life forever. Forever. <laughs> Did I say forever? <laughs> and the word change is significant. <laughs> Priorities shifted. Stuff happened. I changed my life because I was in love with this woman. And the same thing happens with Jesus. It also can mean, and I believe means this, it's first in terms of value. In that case, Jesus would be challenging these believers in his church that they had lost or abandoned their love as their top priority. In some cases, they're very closely related, assuming it's true. What did Jesus mean that these, that these believers in this church had lost their primary priority? It's the love for Christ and the love for others that First John describes it means walking in the light walking in obedience challenging each other god's mission is a priority and god's people are a priority those two things are not and cannot ever be separated and john has made that clear that places all of the things in secondary positions it's the love that more than drives us it owns us have you ever been owned by love again men say yes Thank you. It changes us. It's not just because we have to. It changes us at the core of who we are. 
<coughs> as Paul says, we were bought with a price. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says we're not, in, we're not to be enslaved to ourselves. I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 7. He says the same things. We're not our own. In 1 Corinthians 6, we're not enslaved to ourselves. We were bought with a price, so our, our own selfish desires is not to own us. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says we're not to be enslaved to others, others who tell us what we should be or how we should be. We're to be controlled and enslaved to Christ only. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14, he says, God's love controls us, constrains us. It hems us in. It changes us because when Christ died, all died. First love. A love that takes a priority in our time, in our talents, in our dreams in our finances it owns us the other side of that coin we sang this morning I had to sit down and type this in is the fact that we are loved by God it's not just that we've left our love for him we've left his love for us I am chosen not forsaken I am who you say I am you are for me not against me I am who you say I am I'm not who my own selfish, self-centered, or guilt-ridden, insecure person says I am. Neither am I who anybody else says I am. I am who you say I am. Praise God. You guys need to run Hoop Fest or do Iron Man or something. Come on, let's. We love because he first loved us. Because he first And yet, Jesus is saying to his church, you're busy, but you've left your first love. We're going to get to this a little later, but is it, is it possible that some of us have less left our first love? So how do believers who 100% sold out to Christ end up with their loves shifting? John uses an interesting word to describe what happened. They left it or they abandoned. There are a number of ways that verb is translated, but it's purposeful abandonment. It can be left to let wane, but when love wanes, it's never by accident. Listen, if you're asleep, stand up. If you're sleepy, stand up. If you're asleep, it's too late. When love wanes, it's never an accident. It's allowed to happen in relationships, in families, in churches, in communities. It's the natural state of affairs that it will happen because love takes effort. And energy and work. I'm involved in a premarital counseling situation right now, and this couple, you know, they're in love. <laughs> All Twitter painted. And we talk about the different kinds of love, and I always tell them Eros is the quickest to grow. <laughs> I'll, I'll always feel this way. Till Friday, and somebody doesn't take the garbage out. Eros grows first. 
friendship and agape are slower. But without them growing, which is the quickest to die and the hardest to maintain, the feeling, the eros. First loves must always continue to be fostered. Let me say that again. If you're married, you have a family, first loves must always continue to be fostered. And if they don't, they grow cold. The natural course of events is for other things to encroach on any first love or choke it out. Think about what Jesus said to the parable in the parable of the soils. The same word, the same is spread around. And for those in the weedy ground, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the Think again with me how John ended the letter we just finished in 1 John. What was his parting shot? What was the last thing he said right before he went on permanent sabbatical and was killed? Little children, term of affection, keep yourself from idols. When you read that, did it seem out of place? It's like he's finishing and he's like, keep yourself. What? John, did you just wake up from a nap? Where'd that come from? I want to tell you what is it that encroaches on first love, our first love with Christ. Idols, anything that takes the place, supplants, superimposes our love for God, it becomes an idol. Now in Ephesus, there was the danger of mixing various religions. They had the, the temple of Artemis there, which by the way was 400 and some feet long. It was one of the six seven wonders of the world when they built this thing and people came and there was all kinds of cultic worship. And the tendency was to say Ephesus was a wealthy city. It was a tolerant place and everybody came together and the various religions were mixed saying, oh, it's all okay. That sound familiar? And in the midst of that, there is this one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You can't have me and all of that. But beyond that, there is stuff that vies for our attention and our ultimate allegiances, isn't there? Stuff? I'm amazed at how many storage buildings continue to be built. Because we can't get our stuff in our houses or our garages. We park outside and then we rent a storage shed. Why? Stuff. Stuff. And stuff owns us. And it can be good stuff. Uh, a, a guy just gave me a bicycle. I think he was saying, you need to get in shape. And he's right. But how much time does it take to ride that bike? A lot. And, I, and it's a great gift. And I'm now I'm like on my calendar. You know, one of the greatest things I did this week was take all the stuff off my calendar. <laughs> Except ride a bike. Do a few things. And we begin to crave new stuff because the old stuff isn't, doesn't smell like new stuff anymore. You ever sat in a new car? I need this. 
My car has a thousand miles on it. Doesn't smell like this. It's not just stuff. How about careers? Reputations. Appearance. Control. Relationships. Family. Bitterness. The subtle shift is when we believe that God exists to serve our desires and meet our needs or to solve our problems, and we worship those things. We pursue those things. We focus on those things rather than on him. We've left our first love. When happiness becomes a higher priority than holiness, we've probably lost our first love. I'm not saying we shouldn't have stuff. I'm saying what's our first love? Remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? <laughs> hey, what do I have to do to be saved? The bottom line, give up your first love and take on a new one. Me, Jesus is saved. What's the solution? You know one of the other things I'm going to really enjoy about this summer? I don't have to look at that clock one more time. What's the solution? It's to remember how easily we forget, don't we? Issues, hardships, life squeezes out and we forget. When I asked you earlier, do you remember when you first met your spouse? The answer, by God's grace, should be yes. But don't you have to focus on that a little bit? Don't you have to go back and revisit? The nation of Israel is a great picture of that. How often did they forget who God was? And they would be running along, great. He would be their first love, their first passion, their first priority. And what happened to the next generation? He'd forget. God who? And God kept telling them, build altars, build altars, build altars. Someone said this week, we need to keep re-remembering. We need to keep reminding ourselves and we need to keep reminding each other. That's, by the way, one of the reasons for coming to church. We re-remember, we remind, and in growth groups we remind. I don't know anybody who keeps their first love alone without being pushed and prodded by others who know Jesus. So often in their case, it was from one physical generation to the next, and that can be true of us. By the way, if we in our generation or in our families lose our first love, the odds are our children will totally walk away. They will follow our priorities often, not always, and take it one step further. J.D. Greer, if you've heard of him, J.D. was speaking a week ago, and he was talking about they've developed a phenomenal church that does a ton of outreach, and J.D. was being honest, and he said, man, we've been around now almost 20 years, and he said, when we first started, all we ate, drank, slept, was reaching this city for Christ. We thought of nothing else. And we would have nothing less. And he said, we have a great ministry. We have a great ministry. I'm proud of our ministry. 
And then he said, but have we settled for just okay? He went on to say in the idea of giving, he said, man, my wife and I give. We give regularly. He said, I I'm proud of our giving, but, is all, but does he own everything? Or am I just give, giving a percentage that I think he's satisfied with because I'm satisfied with? And it's not just about giving. It's about passion. It's about everything. And he said, after 20 years as a church, have we potentially do, been doing all these good things, but we've lost our first love, which is the head of the church and his priority and loving him and loving each other and giving our lives for the sake of his gospel? The first part of the antidote or the solution is to remember and then it's to repent. What does repent mean? Change. You can't keep going the same way. You've got to turn. You've got to turn and go away. The church in Ephesus needed to stop doing what they're doing. And in some days, in some things, what they were doing was good stuff. In this case, it was drifting, being distracted. It was leaving their first love, repenting us to stop changing those other things that we think are more satisfying than God himself. It's to turn from them and back toward their first love. It's to reorient our thinking and our acting. Let me tell you, here's one of my, I, I believe in marriage. I believe in marriage curriculum. I believe in financial curriculum. I believe in all of that. But you know what one of the problems with marriage curriculums and the church is today? The church at large? We pursue God in order to have a good marriage. And so we're leveraging him for our benefit. It's about the marriage, not about God. If we pursue God, guess what happens to our marriages? They follow along. First priorities, first love, love him. And then we have to return. The final part of this antidote is to return. It's to go back to what we used to do, used to value, used to pursue. I believe that what is being said here is exactly what John was talking about in his letter, and that is loving God and loving others. All of our work is measured by that scale. It's not what we do. It's why we do it and for whom we do it. We can be doing a bunch of good stuff just like that church was, but it can be about us. Another question, what are the consequences? It's not, not exactly clear what having the lampstand removed means. It doesn't mean that a person would lose their salvation. We know from Scripture that's not true. Remember, this letter is addressed to a church. I believe that removing the lampstand is to remove their influence or even perhaps their existence as a church. Let me explain that a minute. What's a church? It's people. It's people. It's not a building. It's not a piece of property. It's people. It's people who are called by God to love God. To what? Be conformed to his image and to spread his gospel. To enhance the kingdom. A church is people who are pursuing God. And what happens if we lose our first love? We cease to be 
a church. We become a church that's an organization. We become a church that comes and does something and then goes and lives our lives separate from that. We become a church organism, organization. We become a, a, a religion. We don't become, we lose the power of God in being the body of Christ. When we gather together as a church, let me tell you what our purpose is. It's to glorify God, but it's to encourage each other to stay after our first love. At Bible school this week, one of our coaches, Mr. Kirsch, young Mr. Kirsch, no, no, you don't know. Look at it. He thinks I've got, I call him up to volunteer. Here we go again. <laughs> I was standing over there and I was watching him. He was working with these young kids. He's like, you guys are awesome. You're doing a great job. You guys, you're the best team. And they're just little kids like, eh. he's encouraging them. He's challenging them. He's speaking into their lives. And I'm like, that's what we're supposed to do as a body of Christ. You're awesome. Oh, beloved one, you're loved by God. Listen to Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Oh, man, we're out of time. And let us consider how to stir one another on towards love and good deeds. Then I have you said. How do we stimulate one another towards Love. And good deeds. We do that by gathering together and encouraging each other. It can't happen. It won't happen on our own. I was speaking with a family in the last week or so who's found themselves in a crisis, and they said, perhaps this is a wake-up call for our family. Perhaps. Wake-up calls come in a lot of different ways. Some of them are crises. Some of them are in the form of flatlands where we're just existing. I got to tell you, I can't preach this sermon without thinking about the Just Okay commercials. They're about Internet access, but... Just okay is not okay is the way they end. One of them is brake service. Oh, we have a saying. Are you good at brakes? Oh, we have a saying around here. Either your brakes will stop you or something will. The okay surgeon, he's going into surgery and he asks the, the patient, are you nervous? Yeah. And he says to the, <laughs> the surgeon, yeah, but we'll figure it out when we get in there. An okay tattoo artist. <laughs> I think that might have been the first one. Stay in your lane, brah. Because he, he's checking. The guy can't even spell it. He's putting a tattoo on him. Think of our lives. An okay pilot, an okay banker, an okay relationship, an okay financial planner. We don't accept okay anywhere except sometimes in our walk with God. It, well, it's just okay. And what do you think Jesus says about it? Just okay. It's not just okay. I have so much more for you. 
as we've been praying about this, we've picked a theme for this summer. David read it this morning. Philippians 3.10. I want to know personally, intimately Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The other day in one of our men's group, we were praying about this summer and Linda and I going on a break in the church and the leaders of the church and a man prayed, Doug, no, he didn't pray that. God, have your way with Doug and Linda this summer. And I went, Amen. And then I said, Amen. Isn't that really what we want? God, have your way with us. But so often we say, have your way, F. Have your way according to my way. Lord, would you do, have your way with me as long as. And I want to suggest that this church is 25 years old. You know, our 25th anniversary is my first Sunday back, first Sunday in October. 25 years. Is it possible that as a church or as individuals, we're just okay? I'm not saying that, but isn't it time maybe for us this summer to pray about that and say, God, have, has my first love waned? Is it just okay with me and you? By the way, that's purpose of a Sabbath once a week. And we stop and refocus. We remember, we repent, and we renew. And so many of us go so long, turning the crank so hard that Jesus is trying to keep up. Except he never tries to keep up. He stops and waits for us to remember, to repent, and to return. And as your pastor, I'm telling you, I need a sabbatical because I haven't done that well. I need to stop. And the church just says, Doug, we're giving, you the, we're giving you the option of stopping, but stop you better. If we hear you're preaching some way, you're in trouble. If you're answering emails, you're in trouble. So they'll probably send me some, just a test. We value what you do. We value the church. We value the pursuit of God. So as our pastor, you must lead that way. And I want to encourage you, please pray that for Linda and I. Lord, have your way. But I'm praying that for you, for us this summer. Lord, would you have your way with us as we look at 25 years old? It's just okay, just okay. Have we gotten in a rut and we're satisfied? We have a good church service. We love our growth group, but for God to rock our worlds and own us and send us out as ministers of reconciliation with the gospel, are we saying that's for some other dummy? That's for Doug, that's for missionaries, that's for somebody, but it's not for me. Really? Is that what the gospel says? Have we gotten to the place where just okay is just okay? So I'm praying that for you. God, have your way with this church? Who do you want us to be starting in 2020? Just okay. It's not just okay. I remember when we started this church, Gus and Karen and Linda and I said, we never want to just be a church. 
like another church. But everything tends to institutionalize. And the challenge is to keep from being an organization that runs smoothly, but is not run by the God of the universe. And pray for the elders. As the elders are evaluating and where are we going? What's our future look like? Lord, what risks are you calling us to embrace for your sake, your glory, and for the sake of the gospel? What I want to challenge us here to do this morning is in the next two or three months, remember who he is and what he's done. Who he is and what he's done. And what he's called us to be. Repent. Where we have walked away and asked him to follow us. And turn and engage him. With all that we have, all that we are. And do the things we once did. Which was to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and each other. What would happen if he really was our first love? Rather than just a love or an addendum to our lives. Miss Linda and I leave. That's my prayer. <laughs> Amen. Shared that with her yet? She's been around me long enough know, to know, though. And she encourages me. Remember the stories. God has always been faithful. Lord, I pray that beginning this morning, we would stop. Put the brakes on. Even today, many of us are thinking what we need to get done as soon as we can get out of church. We need to get to the things that matter in life rather than the relationships with each other and stopping to hear from each other and hear you. We have stuff to do that matters. Father, thank you for the privilege that these folks have given us to stop take a breath but I pray that it will be a challenge for us as a church that we might stop remember repent and return to our first love which means it's our first priority we love you because you first loved us you own us. Our lives are not our own because you bought us with a price, the precious love of Jesus. And yet, God, we tend to just take that for granted. Oh, yeah, Jesus is just all right with me. Father, I pray this summer, while all of us are doing whatever we're doing, that it will be a time to reconsider who you are. 
Father, we don't want to be like the Ephesian church who maybe had this letter written to them and then ignored it. Father, this summer, our prayer is this. We want to know you. We want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that we might attain to the resurrection that is in him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.